can't tell you the delight that I have in my heart right now to be able to just share with something, uh, share something with you that is is so so deep in my heart. Uh, so so yes, uh, I want to talk about uh, Lydia. Did you know that there was a lady in the Bible called Lydia? There is. She's there in Acts. <laughs> she's quite an incredible lady, uh, and I really appreciate you know, when when you see the writers in the Bible telling you detail about someone, then you know that that person is, is pretty significant. And uh, with Lydia, we get, we get quite a bit of information about her, and so I'd like to share some of that. Uh, and so you'll find information about her in Acts 16, uh, verse 13 to 15. And just prior to that, uh, Acts 16 is talking about, if you know, Paul's journeys. It's Paul's second journey, uh, and uh, he went to... Uh, Derby and then to Lystra, and there was a disciple named Timothy. So he had already met Timothy. Timothy lived there, uh, and so th- he was basically collecting. That was as far as he'd gotten, about as far as he'd gotten on his first journey. He was collecting Timothy to take him further on the next the next journey, uh, and so um, they had wanted to kind of move off of their original path, but it says that the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word uh, in what was then called the province of Asia. And so they tried to enter uh, Bithynia, and they tried to, and, but it said the Spirit of Jesus just uh, wouldn't allow them. So they, they passed by, and then they went down to Troas, and Paul had a vision in the night of a man in Macedonia begging him, saying, please come to Macedonia, we need, uh, please come and help us. And so, uh, and so then uh, they went to Macedonia. Um, in Acts there, you see the talks uh, from the perspective of we, and we know that it was, uh, it was Luke that wrote, wrote Acts. So it looks at that point like you've got Paul, Timothy, Luke, and Silas all traveling together with perhaps some others, but those are the ones that, that seem to be there. So at this point is where they have to go across the sea and what would, we would now call uh, Europe. Uh, Macedonia is, uh, is in, in Europe, so the converts that were made there were the first converts in what we would consider to be Europe. Uh, so they went to Samothrace, then to Neapolis, all these lovely names, uh, and then they traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district. So what Paul was doing is, at this stage was that each time he entered a new place, he would go and find the synagogue. He had been a Pharisee, so he had some influence in that realm. He had enough connection that he could go into those places and start, start talking uh, so he made very good use of the, the remaining influence that he had left before he, <laughs> he turned everything upside down. Uh, but he would go into those places, he would find a synagogue and go and teach there uh, weekly uh, and then, and then build, something, build something from there. And so in um, uh, Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. Uh, he, it says that uh, they went outside the city gate uh, near a river. There was a, a house of prayer, a place of prayer. Uh, and those... You would find those places of prayer, apparently, where there, where there wasn't enough for a synagogue. It wasn't a full synagogue. It was still a building, but it was a place where the Jews would then meet in those places. And so, uh, starting from verse 13, Acts 16, verse 13, so those of you who were looking for it in your Bibles, you've had more than enough time now. <laughs> I hate it when people say, you'll find this in Philippians 4, and then they start, I'm getting there. So, yes, now Acts 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, and these places were built by rivers for the ritual washing that, that people would, would need to do. Uh, and where we expected to find a place of prayer, we sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. 
One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now, a worshiper of God uh, refers to a Gentile who had converted to, to Judaism. So she wasn't uh, born a Jew. Uh, she was a Gentile who uh, yeah, had become a worshiper of God, or in other uh, translations it says a God-fearer. And uh, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So when it talks about her household, uh, as a dealer of purple cloth, she would have been quite wealthy, still, still working wealthy, not, not the wealthy who live off uh, the, 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 you know, the, uh, you know, like in, in England, you have the kind of nobility class who just lives off the, the income from their lands. She wasn't that kind of, didn't have to work wealthy. She was a dealer in purple cloth, but, but nonetheless, a wealthy woman who had a home large enough to host Paul and his fellow travelers, who we know were at least four uh, altogether, and, uh, and also later on to, uh, to host a church in her house. So when it talks about um, she and her household were baptized, that would refer to uh, the, the relatives in her house and then any uh, workers or, or servants in her house as well. So quite, a, quite an influential lady, quite a, a wealthy lady. Um, and what just really interested me about her was was that she used what she had to, to advance the gospel. So she had this, this place that she could use, and she gave that place in to, uh, to, to be hospitable to the travelers and also to her fellow believers. Uh, if you look at the next place that, um, I think it was Eropagus, where uh, Paul and the guys went, and there was a guy there called Jason who was hosting them, and he ended up being, um, being pers- persecuted and had stuff done to him because he was sympathetic to Paul and Silas. So it was not without risk that, that she invited these men into, into her home. Uh, and also you see, so just a bit later on in, in Acts uh, 16, it talks, that's the story about the, the Philippian jailer that we heard about last week and we've been referring to where, uh, where um, Paul and Silas end up in jail and then they praise and the gates go open and the jailer comes out and He's about to kill himself because his prisoners are escaping. And they say, no, just hang on. We're still here. That, that story happens. Uh, and, then, um, and then in Acts 16, verse 40, it says, After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. So that's how we know that Lydia's house then became the, the central point or the starting point of the church in, uh, in Philippi. And what's interesting is that there are no other names mentioned when it comes to the church in Philippi. That's, Lydia's is the only name, the named person for the church in Philippi. And if we look in the book of Philippians, uh, in the first chapter, Philippians 1, verse 4 to 6, uh, as the host of that church and with her, what we see described about her, the fact that we have more detail about her, uh, a lot of Bible scholars believe that she actually was, was leading that church uh, as well in that place, partly because we have we have no mention of, of anyone else there. And what's interesting, Paul makes that connection with the starting point in Philippians 1, verse 4 to 6. He says, In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So that first day, when we met you at the river, do you remember? From that first day, you've partnered with us in the gospel. So he's actually referring to this church in Philippi the first day with Lydia 
and the women around her. And being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of, of Christ Jesus. So uh, I think she's really a lady that we can, we can learn a lot from, uh, just in giving of her resources and, and also in her courage. Uh, she was a lady of influence. She was a lady of, of wealth, but she was willing to risk that to support uh, Paul and his travelers and to host that, that church in her, in her own home. And we see Paul saying that she partnered with him in the gospel, spreading the gospel message, passing on those letters that would have been her responsibility to take those letters and, and uh, speak them to the people around her. But what I, what I most appreciate was that it was integrated in her daily life, that, that exercising her faith could not have been something that happened. She had a job. She was working. She was, she was a trader. She was a businesswoman. She was a, a, a leader of a household. And so, so it wasn't that she was, that, that, that ministry was the only thing that she did or the, the most of the thing that she did. She was, she was a business lady. And so, so I think there's so much that we can learn from her that, that she would have had to integrate those things in her daily life, her, her home and her business. And these all became vehicles for the gospel. And as, as, a, as a wealthy uh, trader as well, um, she would have been considered a patron uh, and so supported when that partnership that she had with, with Paul would have been a financial partnership as well. So not just supporting them in her house, but supporting them in their, in their travels as well. And I know it seems like I'm inferring a lot from the text, but trust me, I've done the reading on it and all of the extra stuff and all of those kinds of things, and, and I'm just summarizing it for you. So if there's anything that you think, did you get that point? You're welcome to come and ask. <laughs> I'll be able to give you a whole lot, uh, but, but yes. So that got me thinking, all right? Um, Paul, he's moving on, visiting these churches. Uh, he comes in, he does his thing, he has his say, he sets something going in, in a true apostolic fashion. That's, you know, get something going, this, this fire starter in the best sense, um, and, and he carried on to the next place, but Lydia had to look those people in the face the next day and the next day and the next day, <laughs> which, is, which is a different thing. There's some things that you can say as, as somebody who, who, who comes for a short time and things that you can do as somebody who's there, but, but when you are the person who stays, there's, there's something else that's, that's going on there. <laughs> I know, Steve knows. <laughs> and I think... What's, what's fascinating about that is that it has to be, uh, it has to be relational and there has to be uh, a community around that. And I think often, you know, we, when we see this kind of, uh, you know, person who comes and moves on and, and we, um, you know, there's this evangelism is the specific thing that happens at a specific time like we've had in the past week. It's tempting to say that's evangelism. And yes, it is. But it's not just that. It's every day, and it's, it's our lives. The flow, the outflow of our lives is evangelism. And sometimes, I must be honest, I feel like, I feel like that's harder for me sometimes. That's, that's maybe for different people and different personalities, depending introvert, extrovert, whatever. Maybe they both have their challenges now that I think about it. Both, both types of evangelism have their challenges. And so what I'd like to do today is to give some thoughts about this um, uh, day-to-day evangelism, an everyday evangelism. And uh, I think, I like to think of evangelism that's not, okay, now I'm evangelizing. 
and now I'm not. That, that my life is a light that shines Christ, no matter what I do. When I'm at the shop and I'm saying hello to the, the, the lady who's serving, you know, who's putting my groceries through, I, I want her, she may not know that it's Jesus, but I want her to experience Jesus in my interaction with her. Uh, I want people to experience Jesus in every interaction, even if they don't know. One day, someone else will come with that same heart, and they go, I've seen this before. Even if it was just a smile, just a look, just a something, it'll be something familiar that they go, I've seen this before, and, and it's, it will echo. And, and if you look how you came to faith, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to see often there's, there's things over time where you've had a, a real struggle uh, and, and you've kind of come out of that struggle. It's, it's very seldom just one thing or just one conversation or just one person or just one moment. So often there's, there's a journey of, of one sentence here, one song there, one dream here, one something, little bits that just all come together in part of our journey. And so each of us can play one puzzle piece. We can be that one puzzle piece in, in someone's journey. And it just starts with, there's, there is an intentionality to it, but once we've put in that intentionality, it becomes natural. Um, so, yeah, Hans and I, we love talking to people about faith. And, and we kind of tend, in our own personalities, more towards an apologetics kind of thing. So Hans has spent many hours on uh, on atheist forums online and, and also speaking to um, atheists when I was at lecturing at university. Um, people knew that I was a believer, so sometimes they would come with questions and we would meet with them um, and just chat through chat through things. Um, and so it's it's been so fascinating to just, just see that. And from that kind of example, we've we've had some some insights that can really help when, even when you're dealing with a non-hostile, <laughs> uh, not particularly hostile, hostile people. Uh, and one of the main things that 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 we keep as as a focus, obviously, the most main thing is love. That that it's never about being right. It's never about correcting over connecting. It's never about you know, bludgeoning someone into submission. It's love must, must fuel what we do. And one of the ways that we can love in that is, is by finding those connection points. By uh, when you go into a discussion with someone, I'm not trying to get the moment where they agree with me. That's not my aim, actually, to get an agreement, to get a commitment to get uh, something to, to make me feel like I've, I've been successful. I'm not actually, for me, success in those discussions is deeper understanding. For me to better understand where they're coming from and hopefully for them to have a better understanding of where I'm coming from. And that's such a, it's such a mind shift to say, let me understand. So that's uh, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi where uh, he says... Um, that I may seek uh, to understand rather than to be understood. Uh, if you have 15 minutes with someone, you can spend 15 minutes trying to be understood, or you can, which normally means talking, <laughs> or you can spend 14 minutes understanding and one minute. That one minute 
is often more effective than the 15 minutes of trying to be understood over understanding. So in this environment, this is not a dialogue. Here I'm making myself understood. And so this is a different context for communication. But so often we kind of take preaching as a context for our one-to-one -one conversations, which they're not. <laughs> Please don't preach in a one-to-one -one. It's a conversation. It's a dialogue. That's a different context of, of conversation. And when you start preaching at someone in a one-to-one -one conversation, that's the quickest way to get people to go, <laughs> just like you just see the glaze go over people's faces because there's not an, an, a, a desire to understand. When someone tries to understand you, you feel heard. And there's that little, there's that little thing of um, people don't remember what you say as much as how they felt in, in their interaction with you. And there's actually where they've done studies where they've, you know, kind of, obviously in America, this is a big thing with their huge partisan Republican Democrat thing that they've actually done studies on what, why is there this incredible polarity, um, polarization, sorry, between the, the two of them and, and, you know, how can you get collaboration with such intense polarization? So in some of those studies, what they, what they found is that when somebody feels good about themselves, they are more open to change. And so if you're just kind of barraging someone with facts, even facts, as crazy as it sounds, facts are almost useless, <laughs> as, as much as it pains me to say that, because I, I love to be uh, evidence-based, and, and I love facts, and I love truth, and I love all of those things. But when you're in a discussion with someone, facts are, are close to useless, because you can give somebody all the facts, but, and they may be absolutely true facts, but this is where I get to an interesting part of this thing is, is how our brains are wired. And, and I think there's, it's really important to understand how our brains are made. God made our brains to work in a particular way. And so as believers, for us to stand how, understand how our brains work, we can hack our own brains <laughs> to help us be more, be more wonderful, wonderful believers. But it can also help us to know how most effectively and how best we can communicate with others. And so when, um, when you present facts to someone, those facts are always filtered through that person's experiences, through that person's emotions, through their instincts, through their circumstances. Anybody who believes that they are a purely objective uh, recipient of facts is mistaken, <laughs> is, is sorely, sorely mistaken. There, there is no, and I, I can just imagine some people bristling, but I can be objective. I'm not controlled by my emotions. Are you getting emotional about it right now? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and that's because when we, when we have beliefs that are tied to our sense of identity, when those beliefs are challenged, our body experiences that as violence on our body. Does that make sense? It's as if somebody is punching you and your body is, is reacting against that. When our core beliefs attached to our sense of identity are challenged, our body interprets that as, as almost a, a physical, physical violence. That's the same thing that, that happens in our body. Our adrenaline kicks in uh, that and, and um, different parts of our brains kick in. So you've got this part of your brain called the thalamus. 
I'm only going to mention three, so don't stress. You've got this part of your brain called the thalamus, and your thalamus is the, the traffic conductor. Something happens to you, your brain gets a whole lot of input. You see something happening, you hear something, you, you get input. Your thalamus decides, is this urgent or not urgent? <laughs> is this life-threatening or not? If your thalamus decides this is life-threatening, and normally when you're getting a whole lot of information at once, it probably is life-threatening. Explosion, sound, light, force, dangerous, must do something, amygdala. So there's these two little bits, kind of, if you go back this way and there, kind of behind your eyes, two little parts of your brain. Um, well, there's amygdala made up of two parts, about this thick. Uh, and that is the part of your brain that works with survival. Uh, when I go into survival mode, you hear about fight or flight. That's when your amygdala kicks in. Your thalamus takes that information and just sends it straight to your amygdala. It doesn't go through your prefrontal cortex. This is your prefrontal cortex. Decisions, rational thought, weighing up the pros and cons. doesn't go there. just goes straight to the amygdala. <laughs> so those moments when you, you, know, you see the car about to, and your brain just... Your muscles fire, everything goes, you get that immediate focus, that's your amygdala kicking in and helping you survive. It's a wonderful thing when you're in danger. <laughs> but when you're not really in danger, it's not very helpful. And, and so what, what often happens is when we're communicating with someone, if we are not being our best communicating selves, we can trigger other people's amygdalas, or they can trigger ours, and, and then, then the conversation shuts down. So the moment somebody raises their voice, even, when someone starts shouting in a conversation, a parent shouting at a child, child's amygdala kicks in, they become incapable of rational thought. The, 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 the amygdala overrides anything that there's no information going to the prefrontal cortex at all. It just shuts down. Um, and so when you're in a conversation and somebody, you know, voices start rising, you know, the, the, has anybody ever had the red curtain? <laughs> the red curtain start, that is your amygdala. Then you know there's, there's, it's just not possible to regain rational conversation and, and, and productive time in this, in this point. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, for ourselves, find ways to not um, and also for others to find ways to, to, even though often when we are evangelizing, we are challenging people's core beliefs about themselves, about God, the things that they have built their lives on without necessarily realizing it. How do we do that in a way that doesn't just shut down communication? And so we, it's not just the brain. <laughs> it's not just the brain. Well, not just that part of the brain. Also, we want to be secure. We want things to be predictable. If we had to take all new information and have to consider every new bit of information all the time, we would be exhausted. Our brains kind of deal with something, and then we put it away, and we say, okay, that's, that's, that's what we do with that kind of information, and then, you, and then we, you know, everything in a box to the left over there. That's fine. I've dealt with that. That's sorted. I can take new information on now. Your brain sorts it out over here, develops something, and puts it over there. And that's great because we just don't have the capacity to deal with new information all the time and to be always evaluating new information. But what that does mean is that we tend to something called confirmation bias. 
which is where our brains naturally filter out things that disagree with what we already believe, and we naturally prioritize things that we do believe already. So we're dealing with that, and we're dealing with people who are dealing with that. Also, commitment and consistency. Once I've said something publicly, if I stand here and I say, I am this kind of person, it's really hard for me to then come back in three weeks and say, I'm not that kind of person, I'm this kind of person. Because we see, we, you know, as a society, we see, well, that's inconsistent. Were you being deceptive then? Or were you, you know, what's, what's happened in between that now you, you know, you've changed your mind? Well, but at the same time, we think it's positive for somebody to change their mind in a direction of truth, which normally means what I believe. <laughs> we normally see that, the, the, you know, what's the, if it's closer to what I believe, of course, that's a good direction. You should change your mind in that direction. But don't, you know, if you change your mind in that other direction, that's inconsistent. So we also have a societal thing of wanting to be consistent. We want to have a group that we feel part of, and so we need to believe the things that that group be believes so that our group can be bigger and so that that big group can protect us because we believe the same things as that group. We have that, as does everybody else in the world. So especially with people of other religious uh, beliefs, they have a whole community around that religious belief that there's a huge risk to changing your mind. So even if presented with all of the facts and all of those things to, to make that change, there's, there is a price to be paid for making that change. The most important thing about this information is to be aware of it. That's all. Because once we're aware that we are vulnerable to these things and that others are vulnerable to these things, we can come into conversations with, with a greater understanding and, so, and, and give Holy Spirit space to work in those conversations. If, I've coming in, if I'm coming in guns blazing, triggering amygdalas everywhere, I want to help that person be receptive to the Holy Spirit. And so by, by coming into a conversation in a particular with a heart of love and just with particular ways of doing or not doing things, I can help them to hear the Holy Spirit uh, in, a, in a more effective way. One last thing, the, the, the combination between confirmation bias and that desire for consistency is the backfire effect, that if you start giving someone more facts, just kind of push more facts in their direction, they actually tend to dig in <laughs> more on the view that they already had. So uh, because they want to stay consistent and they keep confirming that confirmation bias, oh, well, that was, you know, who paid for that study, or whatever the, the people will find ways to discount the information that doesn't agree with them. So, so we need to come with the spirit of Jesus, because I, I just love what Jesus did. Whenever people came at him with, with, you know, the Pharisees, so, you know, what should we do on the Sabbath? You know, your disciples are doing this on the Sabbath, and, you know, they come at him with a, a question. And he, he, with a gentle spirit, comes with another question. And he, he kind of goes around. They're trying to trigger some reaction out of him, and he's able to just quietly go around it. And that's a real skill. If there's something that you do want to uh, look up, um, it's something called nonviolent communication and active listening. And there's, there's real skills and techniques to this thing of nonviolent communication and active listening. But I want to just give you some, some small points. The one is you don't have to defend God. 
How crazy is that? How often do we go in with like, I've got to defend God. <laughs> He's big enough to defend himself. <laughs> he, there's no new questions. There's no new questions. There's no new challenges to God. I don't have to go into a conversation with fear that somehow God is going to fall off his throne because I'm not able to answer somebody's question. All right, so be free. Also, I don't have to go into a conversation saying, I must get the output here, otherwise this was not a successful conversation. I don't have to be tied to the outcome of that. People have free will. They can get all of the information, they can get all of the Holy Spirit, but they can still choose not to, not to make a choice, not to make a decision based on that. I give what I can give in love, and they do with it what they need to do. God is working in every single person. I don't need to be the person that gets that, that final moment. There's, there's 50, 100 people who've all contributed to that moment where somebody actually makes a connection. I don't have to be the one that gets that moment of connection. When you go into one of those conversations, try to go in calm. If you find a conversation disintegrating, take a break. Say, I don't feel like I'm able to carry on this conversation right now. I feel like I'm getting, I'm not able to, to do this. So could we pick this up another time? If it's, I mean, there's so many, one of the struggles I found is each time I would say, maybe take this point and you say, well, I can think of 50 times where that's not really applicable. Take the heart behind these and apply them to the, the situations that you face. It's okay to say if somebody's, if you're talking about someone, something, or somebody's asking you a question, you've, you've started a conversation and somebody asks you, it's okay to say, I'm really not sure. Or, you know, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about chatting about this sometimes because I know that it's something that people hold so deeply. So if people see that, that you're coming in with the heart of love, that you are an actual human being and not just a spouter of facts, uh, then it really helps to create a collaborative conversation. <laughs> yes, yeah, let me get back to you. And just something fascinating. My, my brother's staying with us. Uh, he's visiting from Canada, and he, uh, they have something called an ethics bowl in Canada where they have discussions. And you have two teams, and the goal is collaborative discussion. It's not a debate. It's not about proving one right and the other one wrong. It's were you able to collaborate and each gain a, a deeper understanding and how are your communication skills in each gaining a deeper understanding? Uh, I'm just fascinated. I'm doing research about it because it just fascinates me that, that, that this kind of thing exists. I think it's a skill that so many of us can, can learn. How do we really have collaborative, collaborative discussions? Empathy. It's so important coming into, coming into a conversation. You don't know what that person is facing or where they've been or what traumatic experiences they've had that have led them to the place where they are at. And so try and put yourself in their shoes as to, you know, where is, is this coming from? And so sometimes I'll say to someone, this seems really important to you. When you can see someone getting, getting stressed about something, it's such a powerful thing to just say, I see you. I hear you. I can see this is really important to you. Is it... What is it about it that makes it such a deep thing for you? If, if the conversation is ready to go to that place, you can say, I see, this is really stirring up things for you. Do you want to talk about that? And often people say, well, yes, this happened and that happened. And, and, and then you're really getting to the nugget. And I, I know when Hans was on the forums, he, would, he said often 
people would have all sorts of very intellectual arguments. But you kind of say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you finally get to the nugget of it, and it would be, well, my dad was a pastor and he beat my mom. Okay, all right. So that's where all of this is coming from. This is the armor that's been built up over this little boy's heart that was desperately traumatized by, by the parents that, that, by his parents. And, okay, then Holy Spirit can come. And, I mean, Holy Spirit's there all along, but then you can say, okay, well, this, now we can move forward with the gospel because we've really gotten to the real heart of the issue. But that takes time. It takes trust. It takes commitment. It takes a safe place of communication where, where somebody feels heard. They're not going to say that unless they know that you're going to hear them and that the information that they're giving you is, is that, that you will be, be faithful with that information. And, and so that's sometimes the hard part is, is the time. I know there's, there's been people that, that Hunt and I have been friends with for many years. Uh, and I think this is the bit where the, the Holy, being Holy Spirit-led really comes into it. Because sometimes you try and speak to someone and you can feel it's hard ground and, and, and I, can, I, I can just sense I'm not going to get anywhere with this person. And that's Holy Spirit. And there's sometimes where there's hard ground and I pray about that person. There's still one person in particular. I pray about that person and I just see him standing worshiping with his hands lifted high every time I pray for him. Sorry. <laughs> Every single time. And I say, okay, God, I'm going to keep putting in, I'm going to keep committing to this relationship, committing to this friendship. And so that's where we really need to be Holy Spirit-led. We've got limited time. We have limited resources. Where are we going to put those things? Trust Holy Spirit to show you where to put them. Last two things. Find common ground. You can find common ground with anyone. When you start with common ground, then you can work from there. It's not me against you, and I have to oppose you at every point. Let's find common ground, and let's go on a journey together to find the truth. I don't know what that is. <laughs> not me. Let's go on a journey together and find the truth. And when, when you are together on a team with that person to find truth, that's a powerful thing. That's a really, really powerful thing. God has given you unique gifts. He's given you a unique personality, a unique look, a unique self, a unique everything. And he wants to use that to reach people in a unique way. And I just want to encourage each of us to, in your engagements with people, you don't have to try and be like this person, try and be like that person. Ask God to show you those opportunities. Ask God to help you know how to flow in those, in those moments. How to when, to, when to push and when to hold, when to, and the amazing thing is that he does. He really, really does. He is more committed to the salvation of people around us than we are. He will show us, he will guide us, he will give us the words. Because he loves us and he will inspire us with love for each other.